Yes, and good morning to you again. We are very glad that you are in the house of the Lord today. Uh, my prayer this morning for us was, God, you know, let us encounter you, but let us, Father, let us say it was good to be in the house of the Lord, and Father, let us take something home today that we can apply um, in our lives coming up. Well, Notre Dame lost again. It, it, the worst part is, you know, last week it was Ohio State. They were ranked two. Notre Dame was number eight. Okay, well, you lose to a number two team, you know. In fact, Notre Dame didn't even drop in the rankings. Even though they lost, they were still number eight. And then yesterday, a no-name, unranked team comes to home. Comes to home. Pardon me. Yes, I know. They can thunder all they want to, but the bottom line is they beat Notre Dame at home. I just can't forgive them, Lori, for that. I just can't. I know. I remember the story about the airplane crash and all that, but beating Notre Dame at home, I tell you what. But once again, I am grateful. How about them dogs? How about them dogs? Whoa! Yeah. Yeah. We've got several young men on that team and on that varsity team, and we're proud of you guys. I want you to know that. I watched. I got to, now, I didn't stay for the whole game. That's, I'm too old for that. Um, I got to watch Mello make a touchdown, catch a pass, and catch a touchdown. So that's pretty cool. So we're proud of you guys. I want you to know that. Uh, really cool. Are you, a, are you a Thundering Herd fan? Oh, okay. Well, Lori's a Thundering Herd fan. Okay. Yeah, Marsh. Well, you know, you know what happened. You don't remember this. You know, see, I don't have, it, I don't have to hurry down because we don't have the same school after this. But, but, you know, back one day we were doing the, honor, the Armed Forces thing. And y'all, some of y'all know this story. And... Uh, Gee, I just, her name just skipped me. Mitchell. Somebody, y'all remember her? A lady named Mitchell. That's her last name. Come on, y'all remember? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You remember when I tell the story. Anyway, so we were doing, we were doing the story, you know, we were doing the armed forces thing, and I got up afterwards to preach, and I made some comment about the Coast Guard being armed forces wannabes. Yeah, her nephew was in the Coast Guard. She rode me like a dog. <laughs> she rode me like a dog. It's kind of like, you know, the, 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 I, learned, I learned a lesson. Maybe perhaps, Lord. Maybe perhaps I learned a lesson anyway. Hey, listen, we're again, we're glad you're here. Let me just ramble on just for a moment. Glad to have um, Carrie and Cynthia Maxim here today. Um, very glad for them. They're visiting with us this morning. Um, I, from out of town, like Marion, like Marion. My favorite memory of, of Carrie is one day we're in the old sanctuary, and he kind of fell over. And we all thought he was dead. Gratefully, he was not. Gratefully, he was not. But we did this when we went. And over he went. But anyway, so yeah. So listen, so psychological warfare. Let me kind of give you a little bit of an intro of what's going on. You remember, we've, we spent the entire summer um, talking about, well, the, the first context was, um, was basic military training. But we changed that to fit our, where we are. And we changed the biblical mindset training. And we spent the entire summer talking about how can we fix our mind on God in this crazy culture that we're living in, and we based it on the armor of God. Well, when we started that, there were actually two messages left in the Elijah series that I intentionally set apart for this, because it dealt with and deals with Elijah in one of his darkest moments when he was battling psychological warfare. And so that's why we're back into Elijah for the next two messages before we finish up with the Apostle Paul uh, with his great goodbye uh, right before he's executed for the cause um, of Christ. So 9-11, 9-11. 
Um, it was a clear September day, 7.45 in the morning, uh, when the first plane hit the first tower, and then 18 minutes later, the second plane hit the tower. And it was crazy. We were crazy. Um, we, were, we were gripped, instantly we were gripped in fear. Instantly, the nation. Because here's why, here's why. We didn't know what was coming next. The military didn't know, the government didn't know, the people in New York didn't know, no one knew. If they, if they did this, they could do anything. And we just didn't know how we were going to be attacked next. It, it's not new. We, we learned it in the Bible. You know, when, the, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, the, the, the disciples ran. They ran away. And the reason they ran away was, and, and don't be too harsh on them, because that, their logic was, was our logic in 9-11. You know, their logic was, if they did this to our leader, they can do it to us. So they had a reason to be filled with fear. If they nailed our leader, Jesus, to a Roman cross, they can nail us to a Roman cross. So they ran. They were afraid. And that's how fear works. We, we use a not often sensible logic, and, and things you know, drive us nuts with fear. So today we want to look at fear and there's no, there's, no, you know, there's no rainbow at the end of the story this week. Um, there's no you know, present with a, a bow tied on it this week. We are simply going to walk with Elijah through his darkest hour. And next week, it, again, it won't be easy. But next, year we're going, or next week, we're going to see um, some great, great truth. Um, we want to talk about, I, I want our first teaching point to talk about fear-mongering, fear-mongering. Let me just read this while I'm here so I can go there. You know, fear-mongering is the um, action of deliberately arousing fear or alarm about a particular issue. Let me read to you again. The action of deliberately arousing fear or alarm about a particular issue. So fear-mongering is a type of physical, uh, psychological warfare. Um, people... Barring from Mark Anthony, friends, Romans, and countrymen will often try to manipulate us and change our behavior by creating fear and uncertainty and anxiety. So, so people, people will be guilty of fear mongering. At first, the slide I had said our enemies, and I realized it was much bigger than that. You know, sometimes our friends can be guilty of fear mongering. Um, you know, if, if, a, if a lady is wrestling in her marriage and, and you know, a friend says, well, you know, he could be cheating on you. And, it, and instantly in a moment, that seed of fear, you know, her security in her marriage is instantly under attack. And she begins living in fear. And it could be the other way around. It could be, you know, a guy at the coffee shop and he says to his friend, you know, your wife could be cheating on you. So, so it's easy for even our friends to cast Fear. This guy's fear. Preachers do it. Preachers do it. I, I said in first service before I corrected myself, and I mean it both ways, you know, but fear is a powerful motivator, and fear is a terrible motivator. Same thing's true of guilt. You know, a preacher will stand up and, and try to frighten people into giving. You know, if you know, if you don't if you don't obey God, God's gonna zap you. Where did that theology come from? You know, if, if you don't tithe, then God's going to cause your engine in your car to blow up. I've never said that. But I went to a church that did. And so the preacher 
would use fear, fear to get people to give. How crazy is that? So, so it can be really twisted. For Romans. Romans. You know, that represents the government. And the government often uses fear to arouse, you know, uses fear as a motivator with people. We were traveling in Indiana, and Illinois has got the same signs, and I'm sure that Kentucky does too. But we're traveling along, and we cross over into Indiana. We're heading up north. And the first thing we see is there's a work zone, and it says, you know, if you kill a worker, well, that's nice. If you kill a worker, you count it as 14 years in prison and $75,000 fine. They're striking that fear. You better be careful because I don't care how it happens. If you kill a worker, you're going to jail. Then they had all these signs up, you know. It said, speed limit, 45 miles an hour, photo enforced. There may or may not have been a camera, but they're telling you, you better watch out. Striking the fear into you. You better watch out because we got cameras. And if you're speeding, we're going to take your picture and send you a nice letter for $250 fine. The government does that. And I'm not sure why the logic. But I'm telling you, in, in, in the COVID mess, boy, the government was, was throwing fear around like crazy. And granted, COVID was horrible. It was bad. People were dying. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were dying. But it seemed like the only tool the government thought they could use was fear. And they threw it out there, and they threw it out there, and they threw it out there. So sometimes it can be the government. And sometimes it's just culture. It's just culture. An everyday thing, um, you know, when, when, they, when, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, and keep in mind Roe versus Wade did not make abortion illegal. It simply threw the abortion issue back to the states where it belonged. But what's the first thing you heard? You heard the president, everybody there saying, you know, we're going to fight this because they've made abortion illegal. I wish they would, but that's not what Roe versus Wade did. Fear. Fear. Sure enough, fear in the hearts of people. Their rights might be taken away. So, so fear-mongering is a real deal. And it comes from those close to us and then from sometimes from the government and sometimes from culture. Now, and, with, and it will try to manipulate us and change our behavior by creating fear, uncertainty, and anxiety. It's, it's horrible. It's terrible. You know, when, when in The Wizard of Oz, our next teaching point, you know, in The Wizard of Oz... I watched it last night to make sure I had it pretty much right. You know, by this time, Dorothy's in, in this place, you know, and, and uh, she's walking along, and she discovers the scarecrow, and then she discovers the tin man, and they're walking along, and they're talking because they're fixing to go in this really dark woods, fear, dark woods, okay? And so Dorothy goes and says, so are there any animals um, in here? And the tin man says, yes, there are. And so the, scro- the uh, scarecrow spoke up and said, well, are there any that eat hay? And the tin man said, well, some, but mostly there are lions and tigers and bears. So Dorothy repeats it back and says, lions and tigers and bears? Oh, my. And then Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And before long, they kept repeating the thread until they believed it. They figured out that behind every tree was a lion, a tiger, or a bear, and their destiny was to be eaten by one of these animals. They became overwhelmed with fear. And as you know, by the way, humorously, when the lion shows up, he's a cowardly lion. He's more afraid of them 
than he is of them. So it's just kind of, it was just kind of strange. Just kind of strange. But remember this. This is all I want you to take away. Remember, your mind hears everything your mouth says. And I grabbed that from Judy, and Judy grabbed it from either Greg Rochelle or someone, probably Greg Rochelle. You know, you know your mind hears everything your mouth says. So, so when we are speaking, when we're speaking, and what we talk about, now listen, what we talk about can become ingrained in our brain. Can become ingrained in our brain. You know, our mind is constantly evolving, and it's making new neural pathways. And, and when, we, when we, for instance, when we talk about and believe and live fear, then that becomes the default pathway in our brain, that we become fearful of everything. You know, we become fearful if our hair is going to fall out. We become fearful if we're going to gain weight. Are we going to die of a heart attack? Will we have cancer? You know, your third cousin on your mother's side died of, of, of brain cancer. Oh, no, am I going to die of brain cancer? Everything, everything, everything becomes fear. Everything becomes fear. So, so our mind hears everything your mouth says. Jesus warned us about this. He, he said, you know, don't be like others. You know, over in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31 and 32, he's quoting, he says, now, now by the way, he says, now listen, don't, don't worry what you're going to eat. Uh, don't, don't worry what you're going to have to drink. Uh, don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. Now, now listen to this. This is the New Living Translation, I believe, of verse number 32. These things, worrying about the food and the drink and the clothes, these things dominate. Now, boy, if you're taking notes, write that word down. These thoughts, these things dominate the thoughts. Dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. So, so an unbeliever naturally defaults to fear. You know, the opposite of fear is faith. Unbelievers don't have faith, and so they actually default to, to fear. So, so these thoughts dominate, dominate the thoughts of the unbeliever. Um, but your heavenly Father already knows what you need. He said, you don't worry about what you're going to eat because your Father knows you need to eat. You don't worry about what you're going to drink because your Father knows you need to drink. And that, by the way, would be water. Um, and you, you, don't, you, you don't think about it. You don't let it be dominated by what you're going to wear because your father knows you need clothes. You know, there's, there's a saying, and it's not originally of mine. This version probably is, don't waste today's grace on tomorrow's worries. Don't waste today's grace on tomorrow's worries. When, when you get there for tomorrow, God will give you the grace that you need. I love the quote by Corey Tim Boom. She was, she, her family protected Jews in World War II and then they got caught and she spent time in a Nazi concentration camp. Um, her, her family died there. Her sister days before, days before they were released, her sister died. And she became such a stalwart of faith over fear. And she said this, never be afraid Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You need to write that down. Never be, you know, we don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? And, and the unknown can be fearful, but, but she comes along and says, don't be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That is such great advice for us. All right, so with that groundwork laid about fear and fear-mongering, 
We're going to see how this played out in Elijah's life. Okay? Now, in 19.1, uh, 1 Kings 19.1, here's what happens. So, so we have Elijah, the man of God. We have Elijah, the man of God. And, and he goes up on Mount Carmel and, and boom, you know, God shows down, puts, puts Baal down. And Elijah arranges for the execution of all these prophets of Baal. You know, he does that. Uh, and then he tells Ahab, you better get going because rain's coming. And so Elijah, excuse me, Ahab gets in his chariot and takes off. Um, toward home, all right? And the Bible says, when Ahab got home. Now, you've all, you've all had times when you got home before. You know, might be, might be something. Honey, Jezebel would say, is that you? Oh, yes. How are you doing? Yes. And Jezebel said, so how was your day at the office? You know, that's what, that's what all this was for Ahab, just a day at the office. Didn't matter. It involved, you know, uh, you know, fire being called down from heaven. It's just a day in the office, you know, for an evil guy. And so, how how was your day at the office? And the Bible says he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and he starts setting out. This is what happened those days. This is what happened today at the office. And then he did this. He included the way he had killed he Elijah had killed. All the prophets of Baal. Now, now again, this, is, this was, under God's command, this was Elijah. He arranged to make sure that those prophets of Baal did not escape, and he had them executed under God's command. Why, Dwayne? Because they were evil. Because they were evil. That's exactly why it happened. Well, this really fired up Jezebel, and this is the reason why. Because you say, Well, why did this impact Jezebel so much? Okay. Well, Baal was daddy's God. Okay, her daddy was was king of the Sidons, and and he they worshipped. He was the he was the lead worship leader, if you will, um, in in the worship of Baal. So so you know Jezebel had been brought up to to embrace and to worship Baal. So it was her daddy's god, and and when and when Elijah defeated Baal, her daddy's god, she took it real personal. So she says this. She goes on and says this. When he got home, including the way he killed the prophets of Baal. Look, so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. Okay? May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Boom! What a powerful message from an incredibly evil person. Now I know, I know, I know you would think and say this. Whoa, 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 whoa! We're not talking about some weenie prophet. We're talking about the man of God, Elijah. Why did some, some evil queen even phase him? I think there was something in her tone of voice. And there's something that he did. Let's look at our teaching point. Number one, we already know, I've already said it, Elijah was a man of God. His name meant Jehovah is my God. Jehovah is my God. God. And if we if you walk, take a little stroll, if you if you take a little stroll down Elijah's pathway, you know, public pathway with God, you we remember Cherith. You know, God sent, you know, God sent Elijah to Cherith, and there was a brook there, and every night, every night, ravens would show up and feed him supper and lunch, supper and breakfast. Every morning, every night, you know, you know, bread showed up. Okay, so, so he had this experience, and, and he's going, wow, how incredible is this? You know, I need water. God's providing my water. That was natural. There was a brook there, and then there's a supernatural. You know, these birds are bringing me bread. How incredible is that? And, and then there was Zarephath. You know, one day the, the brook dried up, and God said, time to move on. 
And so he sent Elijah to Zarephath, and Zarephath was a poor community, and he sends uh, Elijah to a widow lady, the poorest of the poor. He shows up. She's out gathering some sticks to make a fire and said, hey, can you get me a drink? Sure, I'll get you a drink. Oh, can you make me some bread? Uh, You don't understand. You see this little wad of bread I got here? See this little dough in my hand? That's all I've got. I'm making this, and then I'm going to go eat it and die with my son. Elijah said, hey, I've got an idea. This is what God says. Well, why don't you go ahead and make that bread for me first? And then your, your, your oil pot is never going to go dry. And your, and your little crock of flour, it's never going to go empty. Okay? So she chose to believe. And sure enough, from that time forward, every day, the lady would go and she would make bread because there would be oil in the pot and there would be flour in the crock. And, and so it went on and on and on and on. You know, he was there to practice his faith. And she was there to learn about his faith. And then one day her son dies. And and Elijah prays this humongous prayer. Never been prayed in the whole Bible. God, bring this boy back to life. Wow, what a big prayer. And guess what? God chose to answer that prayer. And that little boy who was deader than a doornail comes back to life. The first resurrection in the Bible. And it happened because Elijah was willing to pray a really big prayer. That was Zarephath. And, of course, you know the story of Mount Carmel. We already talked about that. Fire falls from heaven. It's amazing. It's incredible. And then God says, okay, it's time for the rain. And Elijah had the faith to pray and say, okay, God, you said it was going to rain. I'm praying it will. And guess what? It did. It did. So all this happens. This is the, this is the man of God. All that happens But then look at this last sentence. This is how Jezebel gets him. And look at me. This is how Satan will get you. He somehow, through Jezebel, got Elijah to drop his shield of faith. And when he dropped his shield of faith, he took a fiery dart right to the heart. Remember Paul talked about this in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, take up the shield of faith by which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. Well, Elijah dropped his shield. We learned how important faith is. Faith is the opposite of fear. And, and we learn that, that you know, the Bible says in the New Testament, in the new part, you know, it says that, that, we should, that, that we should be a people who live by faith and not by sight. We, we learned, yes, a couple of weeks ago that God operates in the currency of faith. He doesn't operate in the currency of sight. He operates in the currency of faith. He operates in the realm of faith. And when Elijah dropped his shield of faith, The evil one was able to shoot a fiery dart right into his heart. And what was that dart? It was fear and it was doubt. Guess what Satan wants you to do? He wants you to doubt God. Back in the Garden of Eden when Eve was there, you know, Satan looks at Eve and says, Did God really say? Can you really? Can't. Oh, 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 this is good. Can you really trust this God? And Satan wants to do the same thing to you. He wants to say to you, can you really trust this God? Is this God of yours really powerful enough? 
That was the dart that hit Elijah in the heart. And it is the dart that God wants, or should say, wants to send your way. Cancer. Losing your job. Will your husband be faithful or will you be left as a single mom? Or will your wife be faithful and you'll be left with three kids and working full time you can't take care of? Will COVID come knocking on your door? What will happen? Beware. Beware of dropping your shield. Keep your shield of faith up. Because Satan wants to throw fiery darts. Well... In verse number 19, verse 3, the first part, the Bible says, you know, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Elijah was afraid. See, Elijah didn't know what we know, and that fear is a liar. You know, Zach Williams in that song that we just sang with the video, it says, you know, when, when he, when, when fear, when, when he told you you're not worthy, has, has fear told you before you're not worthy? Has, has your wife said you are not worthy? Has your parents, students, has your parents said you're not worthy? Has, has the people at work looked at you and you're not worthy? Um, you know, he told you you're not loved? Has he been whispering in your ear that if God loved you, he would not allow this to come into your life? If your husband loved you, if your wife loved you, if your parents loved you, we told you you're not beautiful. Drop 50 pounds and you'd be beautiful. Drop or add 20 pounds and you'd be beautiful. Add six inches, drop three inches. We told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough. Never be enough. Fear. He is a liar. And you've got to take that home today. You've got to understand this fiery dart that Satan wants to hurl into your heart. It's a lie. It's a lie. You are worthy through the gracious blood of Jesus Christ. You are loved. And there's nothing you can do to stop God from loving you. You can't make him love more. He can't make you love less. His love is perfect. He are, you are loved. You are beautiful. In fact, in Ephesians chapter uh, 2 and verse number 10, the Bible says you are a masterpiece. You always are enough through Christ. Through Christ. Elijah didn't have that, and so he was afraid. He was gravely wounded. I'm glad. I almost wrote down mortally wounded, but he was not mortally wounded because with God there's hope. But he was gravely wounded. Something evil and sinister in her voice convinced him. Convinced him. Fear is a terrible thing. Here's a terrible thing. Um, Nancy, can we back up to uh, 2 Timothy 1.7? Can we back up there, please? This, this is too good to let go by. This, this is the antidote to fear. You know, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. So, so when we are in our world, in our world, when, when we see that spirit of fear, we have the constant assurance it is not from God. It is not from God. And when logic will tell us if it's not from God, 
than it is from the evil one. Satan wants to fire the fiery dart at your heart and convince you of fear. So this, this, whatever this fear thing is with you, whatever it is, your health report, your marriage report, your employment report, whatever it is, that fear is not from God. Beware, it's not from God. Now, God did give us a spirit. He gave us a spirit of power. In, in the book of Philippians, Paul says, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He said, I, I, I want to know this power. I want to know the power that caused Jesus to get up from the grave. See, that's See, in the early church, they didn't talk a lot about this. Because all they knew, all they really understood about this is this is where people died. This, this was an instrument of fear. They would leave, the Roman government would leave bodies hanging on the cross for days and it would decay and rot and the birds would eat it. And the message clearly was, don't mess with Rome. If you mess with Rome, this is what you get. So they, didn't, they weren't too enamored with the cross. But guess what they were enamored with? An empty grave. People died on crosses all the time. Now, now again, I, this does not diminish the power of the cross. Don't read that into what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is, is that there were plenty of dead men on crosses. But there's only one who got up again. And Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And, and when he wrote this to, to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power. He said, I want to know this power that caused Jesus to get up. That's a power I'm going to say something important. That's a power greater than fear. That's a power greater than fear. And then he's also said he's given us a, 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 power, a spirit of love. A love. There's this great verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 18. This is the Wayne Taylor shortened version, but it says this. Perfect love, talking about God's love, perfect love cast out fear. And John makes it very clear. He's saying, if you're living in fear, you don't understand the love of God. Because God loves you a lot. He is keen on you. And he gives us this love. And this love, when we understand how much God loves us, how much God cares for us, it casts out fear. And he gives us sound judgment. Sound judgment. This means um, self-control. It means self-discipline. You know what else it means? Sensibility. To be sensible about something. So, so here we have this spirit of fear that's not from God, and God gives us a sensibility. You know why this is so important? Um, Judy's class is doing a, a series um, by Greg Rochelle on mental health. And I, don't, I know it's, it's one of the messages he had. I couldn't remember the number, so I looked it up to make sure it was right. But here's the deal. Now, write this down. 85 to 90%. He found one number. I found two. 85 to 90% in a verified study. This is not some preacher said. I think it was Sanford University. Said 85 to 90% of what we fear and what we worry about never comes true. So, so you're worrying about, Bill, you're worrying about something today. 
And there's an 85 or 90% chance it will never come true. What God says is, listen, I didn't give you this spirit of fear. I didn't give it to you. But I tell you what, I did give you power. I did give you love. And I want you to be sensible about something. Stop being fearful and stop worrying because 85 and 90% of the time, it ain't going to come true. And if it does come true, I'll be there to walk with you through it. Shoot that thing. Amen. Shoot that thing. That's, that's the power and that's the wonder of it all. So, when he tells you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough, fear is a liar. So Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. Now let me tell you this. Don't underestimate the enemy. We tend to do this. It'd been awfully for it'd be easy for us to say, oh Jezebel, she's just an evil queen. Don't over or underestimate the enemy. And in one decisive stroke, Jezebel rids the country of Elijah's troubling presence and brings discredit not on himself, not only on himself, but also on his God. Don't, don't never say never. Never say, that wouldn't happen to me. I would never turn my back on God. I would never be afraid. Don't underestimate the power of the enemy. See, the teaching point says this. Fear will paralyze us so we can't act. You ever had that weird dream? You're trying to run away, and no matter how hard you try, it's like your feet are in concrete, and you can't move, or, or you're, 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 you're facing a cliff, and you're trying to back up, and no matter how much you try to back up, you can't back up. Fear will paralyze us so we can't act, and more likely cause us to react in a wrong way or a dangerous way. That's what happened to Elijah. He, he reacted in a wrong way. He retreated when he should have been advancing. God, God told him at Cherif to take a break. God didn't say that here. And it will cause us to act in a dangerous way. Look, look, at, look at verse 3, the second part. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Beersheba was on the fringes. Judah was a different country. So you might say he left the country. You know, Elvis has left the building. He, he went to another country outside of Ahab's you know, jurisdiction. But he left his servant there. Isolation can be such a dangerous thing. Our next teaching point says this. You know, leaving behind his strongest ally... Leaving behind, now I'm talking about physically, his, his servant was his helper. His servant believed him. I believe in you, Elijah. I believe in you. And he leaves that behind. And he experienced this, Psalm 142.4. This was written by David in one of his dark moments. Look to the right, David said, and see, there is none who takes notice of me. David said, I look around and no one cares. Have you ever been there before? Your heart's breaking. Your heart's breaking. And no one seems to care. No one, no one has time to stop and mourn with you. No one has time to hurt 
with you. It seems no one cares. No refuge remains to me. It's bad that no one cares, but from David's perspective, God didn't even care because God had been his refuge. And now God doesn't care. No one cares. God doesn't care. And the conclusion is, no one cares for my soul. That's what it looked like when you get a dart to the heart of fear and of doubt. And that's, how, that's what Elijah has experiencing right now. Then in verse 4, the first part. So he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. Do you see three things there? Do you see, or is it just my preacher brain? Then he went on how? Alone. We were not made to be isolated. And to just be very transparent, I wrestle with this. I just soon be alone. I don't, want, I don't need want a close friend too often. I just soon be by myself. Dangerous. Dangerous. Isolation is such a dangerous thing. When we isolate ourselves, man, it opens the door for the enemy to put a, heart in, a dart in your heart. Then he went on alone. Where? Into the wilderness of all places. Dryness. Leanness. Harshness. Traveling all day. Too busy to take a rest. Too busy to take care of himself. It's a perfect, it's a perfect setup, if you will, for disaster. Our teaching point says exhausted and weary, alone and afraid, Elijah has reached the breaking point. Ever hit the breaking point? We were working over here in this yard, and you know, I kind of sit behind a desk a lot, so you know, after about two hours, I was pretty bushed. And I told Jeremy, man, I said, I think I've hit the wall. And that means I was done. Sometimes we get done, we reach the breaking point. The, the man who had prayed and rain came and went, who prayed and the dead came back to life, who prayed and fire fell from heaven, now prays one of life's bitterest prayers. He says in the second part of verse 4, he sat down under a broom tree, a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. Been there before? You look around just for, just for an instant of light, and there's not any. You look around for just a little bit of hope, and there's not any. You look for just one voice in the darkness and in the wilderness who will say, I care, and there's not one. So you pray this prayer. Oh, God. Just let me die. Just let me die. Our teaching point says this. Elijah suffers from spiritual amnesia. Cherith and Zarephath and Carmel are all but erased from his memory. You remember the Passover? Remember the Passover? God gave the children of Israel the Passover, you know, and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat this unleavened bread, Okay? I want you to do this once a year because it reminds you of the time when I told you to put blood over the doorpost. And if you put blood over the doorpost, that the death angel would pass by, pass over you. That's what the term, pass over you. I want you to do this every year because I don't want you ever to forget what I did for you. 
You remember a certain upper room? Jesus sits around a table. He takes a piece of bread, a loaf of bread, and passes it around. They break off a piece. And what did he say? Take, eat in remembrance of me. They got the chalice of wine. Sipped, each one sips. Now listen, when you drink this, remember me. God gave the Passover and the supper so we would remember. And Elijah has forgotten. He's forgotten the God of Cherith. Have you forgotten the God of your Cherith? He, he forgot the God of Zarephath. Have you forgot the God of your Zarephath? He forgot the victory at Carmel. You know, have you forgotten your victory at Carmel? They're all but erased. And with them goes the will to fight. He says in verse 4, the third part, I have had enough. Have you ever said that before? I know I have. An instance doesn't come to my brain, but I know I have. It may have been a long deacon's meeting, or it may have been a long phone call from a church member, or it may have been when things just didn't turn out right. I know I've said to God, God, I've had enough. Let me tell you, let me tell you when you're going to say, I've had enough. You're going to say, I've had enough, when you forget Jesus is enough. Let me say that again. You're going to say, I've had enough, when you forget Jesus is enough. Take my life. He knew he couldn't commit suicide. But take my life. For I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. He's saying, just like they failed, I failed. Just like they failed, I failed. And just like they're dead, give Jezebel a day, and I'm going to be just as dead. So take my life. I've had enough. Let's close our last teaching point. It says this Elijah was done. You ever been done before? I've had it. I'm done. I've had enough. I'm done. Elijah was done. But here is the great news. God wasn't done with Elijah. That's a good place for an amen. God wasn't done with Elijah. Now look at me. Read it. God's not done with you either. God is not done with you either. Live, relish, savor the words of Psalm 23, 4. And it's really interesting. The same guy who wrote 142, no one cares for my soul. I look around to my right and there's no one there. My refuge is gone. God doesn't care. No one cares for my soul. The same guy who wrote that wrote this. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, even when the doctor says cancer, even when the spouse says I'm done. Even when the parent says, I wish I never had you. Even when I walk through my darkest valley, I fear no danger. Did you get it? The key word there? I fear no danger. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff. 
they comfort me. Well, that's as close as you're going to get to a bow this week. But there's hope, isn't there? God's not done with Elijah, and God's not done with you. And last week, I just want to warn you, next week is not a, it's not a feel-good, fuzzy message. It's more of, of God talking with Elijah. But, man, the great news is, well, I can't tell you. Then you won't come back. Come back next week. Hear the end of this part of Elijah's story. Would you bow your heads right there with me, please? How about it? First, maybe your greatest fear is dying. And the reason why is you don't know what's on the other side. Jesus can fix that today. Jesus died so that we could live. We have the promise that just like he resurrected, we can resurrect. And what we have to do is believe and put our faith and trust in him. In him. That may not make a lot of sense right now, but my friend Brent's going to be standing down front. And um, he'll be glad to share, I'll be glad to share with you what that means and what that looks like. But for the rest of us who perhaps already know Jesus as Savior, how about this fear thing? Are you willing to pick up your shield of faith off the ground and hold it up once again? Are you willing to say, God, I believe and I trust in you? No matter the circumstances, I trust you. Why not? Why not? Make that your decision. Maybe that's your takeaway today. May you have been living in fear because of the crazy world, and trust me, it is crazy. Maybe your takeaway today is I'm willing to pick up my shield of faith and once again walk with God. Walk with God. Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you are greater than any and all fear that we might face. I pray you give courage to the one who needs to come and accept your son Jesus as their personal savior. I pray you give courage to your children today to be strong enough and willing to pick up the shield of faith again and say no to fear and yes to faith. Fear, you are a liar. And Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen.